This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. My name is uh, Deacon Will, and I'm the youth and college pastor here at Church of the Res, and it's so good to be with you all this morning. This morning, I want to ask the question, can we know peace in an anxious world with so much to be afraid of, so much that we are afraid of, can we know peace? And I thought, you know, in this introduction, maybe I'd tell a story about anxiety, but then I thought, well, I think we all know about that, so I don't need to describe that for everybody. We're all tracking. And I thought, well, maybe I could, like, recap some of the sad things that are in the news, but I think we all know about those too, okay? So we'll just take it for granted that peace is hard to come by, that inner peace is hard to come by. And so that's my question. Can we know peace? The question I'm bringing to this, this text in Isaiah 25 and 26. We're continuing this summer series in the entire book of Isaiah. It was written about 700 years before Christ. And it was, it was written before and even during the exile. And the exile was, without a doubt, the most anxious and fearful time in Israel's history. It seemed like the whole promise of God, the promise that they would be a blessing to the nations, was being inverted in this awful way where they're about to be destroyed by the nations. Everything feels up for grabs, this whole promise. And this is the context that Isaiah is speaking in. As everybody's asking, where do we put our trust? How do we endure the trial that is coming? And so if the prophet Isaiah has something to say about peace, we want to listen, we want to learn from him this morning, and he does have something to say. Isaiah 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I mean, that could be the kind of verse that would make its way onto a tacky piece of Christian art, right? Like, you could imagine seeing that on somebody's wall. If that's on your wall, no offense. Okay, you could see it there, but for Isaiah, this was a truth that was hard won. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. This was a hard won truth for him. And this theme of peace, I mean, if you read the New Testament, it repeats over and over in the New Testament. As the apostles are calling their sheep, their people, to peace. And think about the context that they're speaking in. I mean, the apostles lived what we would think of as unbelievably traumatic lives with torture and fear of death and even martyrdom. And yet they're calling their people to the peace of Christ, which only God can give. Can we know peace? How can we know peace? That's our question this morning. How can we know peace even if things don't get better? How can we know peace even if things don't get better? That's our question. And so to give just a little bit of context for Isaiah 25 and the previous you know, 11 or so chapters, 11 or 12 or so chapters, Isaiah's been preaching this message of judgment against the nations that surround Israel, and he's basically saying they're big and they're powerful and they're prideful and they're arrogant. They think they're going to be around forever, but they're not. 
I will bring justice for you. And then this passage, this message of hope, hope that's meant to be a refuge for the people of God so they can endure the trial to come. How do we live in peace? How can we know peace? The first answer that Isaiah gives is that peace, inner peace, begins with praise. And so I encourage you to open your Bibles. If you have a a pew Bible, we're on page 586. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 1. Isaiah says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. So a few things to note here. O Lord, this is in all caps. So Isaiah, he's not just speaking to a general God, you know, that the other nations might believe in, but he's speaking to Israel's God, the God of the Hebrews, the God who's revealed himself in his name only to the Hebrew people, the name Yahweh. He's saying, Yahweh, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. You, Yahweh, you're the God of the Exodus who brought us out of slavery. You, Yahweh, you're the God of David who promised that one of his descendants would reign on the throne forever. You have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Plans formed of old. He's praising God for his sovereignty, that God is not pushed about by the chaos we experience here on the earth. God is not pushed about. His hands are not tied by human decision. He cannot be manipulated or coerced as we can be manipulated and coerced, but his plans are from old, faithful, and sure. Faithful and sure. And then Isaiah imaginatively sees himself in the future, but looking back on the present moment at what God will do. He sees himself in his imagination in the future, looking back. Verse 2, For you have made the city the prideful city of man, the violent city of man. You have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Strong peoples... They will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Why? For you have been a stronghold for the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. You've been a stronghold. He's looking forward in his imagination as if he's looking back on all that God will do, all that God has promised in his sovereignty to do. And so you see what praise does. Praise lifts Isaiah out of his present circumstances into the heavens where God in his serenity and peace is in control, lifting him out of his present difficult circumstances into the place where God exists in perfect peace. Even psychologists from a a non-religious standpoint, they will talk about the power of, they wouldn't call it praise, but they'd call it awe. Psychologists talk about the power of awe and wonder, that, that with our anxieties and fears, they kind of close us in on ourselves, and we ruminate over and over about them. But what awe and wonder does is it opens us up 
to a bigger and more beautiful world, something beyond ourselves. Okay, and so they, they would recommend, you know, that if, if, you're, if you're burdened by anxiety, that you would just go and take a walk. It doesn't have to be, you know, in Glacier National Park, where some of my friends are going this summer, but it could be a walk just out here, just in your neighborhood. It could be a walk in the city of Chicago, turning off your phone just so that you have the opportunity to experience awe and wonder at the beauty of the world that God has made. The experience of awe and wonder before a beautiful painting or, or listening to a beautiful piece of music opens us up. And people who do this as a discipline, who regularly turn off distractions and pursue opportunities for awe and wonder, they report being more joy-filled in their lives. They report being more connected to those around them. And so if that's true, how much more so for the believer, where we don't just experience awe and wonder, but we have the opportunity for praise. We know the one who is wondrous. We know the one who is awesome and has created all. We know his name and we can give him glory. Praise lifts us out of our present moment and into the peace of God. Peace begins with praise. And so let's move to our second point, which is that peace does not require the absence of pain. Peace does not require the absence of pain or suffering, but peace, the Lord's peace, is actually present to doubt and disappointment and even despair. Look at chapter 26, verse 16. In the middle of this song of hope that Isaiah is proclaiming. He says this, this reminder, this remembrance of the experience of his own people. Oh, Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer. You know, a whispered prayer, like the prayer that you can barely make out. God, help me. I don't know what to pray, but help me. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. He understands that, that the judgment of the Lord, what he's allowing them to undergo, is, is not just judgment, it's discipline, it's for their good, and yet it is painful. He has this metaphor in verse 17, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we. That's what we were like because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant and we writhed within this awful reality, but we have given birth to wind. We went through all of this pain and suffering in hopes that it would be productive, that something would come of this. You know, maybe you've done this. You've, you've sacrificed something to follow the Lord, and yet things still didn't work out. That's the pain of it. You gave the Lord everything and you're still suffering. That's the sense of futility that Isaiah is getting at here. We gave birth to wind, not even a stillborn child. It was for nothing, just a breath. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, even their attempts at justice, even their attempts to fight back against their enemies come to nothing. We've accomplished no deliverance in the earth and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Just futility. 
And so you say, I, why is that lament? Why is that remembrance of Israel's painful experiences, why is that in here? Why is that in here in this message of hope? And it's because peace is present to those things. Peace is present to pain. It's present to doubt and disappointment and even despair. When we're experiencing those things, when we experience doubt, we think, something must be wrong with me. I must not really be a Christian. I must, like, incredibly lack faith. But that's not true. Doubt is part of the Christian life at certain times. Doubt, disappointment, despair, these are features of the Christian life. You're not failing because you experience those things. You're not failing because it's difficult to bring yourself here on a Sunday morning. You're not failing because it's difficult to praise. You're not failing because it's difficult to pray, but, but suffering and pain, this is part of the Christian life, and it's through this experience. As we bring our doubt and disappointment to the Lord, it's there that he gives us his peace, peace that goes past our understanding. Remember this famous verse in Philippians, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. You know, all those anxieties that you carry, that I carry. Do not be anxious about any, anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And what? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. You don't understand it. Your circumstances would make it seem like there should be no sense of peace. But peace is a gift given to you in the midst of disappointment, doubt, despair. I think in a, in a congregation like ours, in a context like ours, where you think of us on a global scale. I mean, we're very privileged in terms of, you know, economics and safety, what have you. And it's very er easy for us to almost become allergic to the idea of suffering. I think this is true for, for many in my generation. It's like we suffer because we're afraid that we might suffer. The fear of suffering is actually the suffering that we're undergoing. If suffering feels like an end, it feels like the final story. We don't know how people could ever make peace with that. And for that reason, it's, it's so important that our church has the kind of partnerships with other churches that we do. We have partnerships with the church in Jos, Nigeria. There's incredible suffering there, persecution for their faith. I mean, fear of death. Every one of those ministers is putting their life on the line in a way that, that does and, you know, strike fear in our hearts. You know, partnerships with, like, Christ Tabernacle in the Austin neighborhood of Chicago, an incredibly violent neighborhood. We need these partnerships because they remind us that suffering doesn't get the final word. We need these partnerships because in these churches, they experience the peace that passes understanding because this is their history and this is their present reality. 
My family experienced this firsthand. So years ago, we lived in Boston. We were uh, attending and, and serving at a predominantly black church. And, and it would not be an exaggeration to say that the black church saved my wife Emma's faith. The black church saved her faith. Because she was going through this faith crisis all week. She was in a grad school program that was saying the church is a tool of oppression for privileged people. Boom. Monday to Friday. But then on Sunday, that wasn't her experience at all. On Sunday, her experience of the church is that it was an instrument of liberation. And it was a place where suffering people and hurting people could go to find refuge, even if all of their sufferings were not answered in this life. And that experience there saved her faith because suffering doesn't get the final word. Doubt and disappointment and even despair, they don't get the final word because God can give you his peace even in the midst of those things. As we bring them to prayer, as we invite the Lord in, we can receive his promises. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. That he is near to the brokenhearted, that he himself was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Peace is possible despite your circumstances. And so now our our third point, that peace takes refuge in hope. Peace takes refuge in hope. Look back at 26, 19. After this lament, this, this remembrance of Israel's pain and her despair, Isaiah speaks to her and says, Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, talking about those who are, who are in the grave, you who dwell in the dust, Awake and sing for joy. Your despair won't have the final word. Death, this, this what he calls in 25, this veil that covers all humanity, even death will not have the final word because there is resurrection. This is the clearest promise of resurrection in the entire Old Testament. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. It's no mere metaphor but you in Christ will conquer death. And the image here is that of of mourning after after a long night, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And so Isaiah invites his people. He says, come, my people, enter your chambers, shut your doors behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. Take refuge. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. The Lord will do justice. So wait, wait. If you need justice in this life to experience peace, then you will not experience peace. There is justice that will only come in the next life. There are sadnesses that we will bring to the grave, but the Lord will wipe away every tear. 
The promise isn't that we receive all of God's blessing in this life. The promise is that we have peace in this life and that in the next life, we will have total victory. We have victory through Christ and his death on the cross where he defeats Satan using Satan's own weapon against him. Jesus defeats Satan through death, shaming him, saying, is that the best that you have, that you think you could stand up to Almighty God? Death is not final for God. There is resurrection. There is resurrection. And so chapter 27, verse 1, this wonderful image. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan is this, like, mythical sea monster, you know, that many of the nations at this time believed in, had stories about. And Isaiah takes that picture to talk about this personal enemy of all of us, Satan, and says the Lord will crush him. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Romans 16, Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You will trample the dragon. He will crush Satan under your feet. That's the promise. And so we see this picture in, in chapter 25, verse 6, of the beautiful, renewed Jerusalem that is waiting for us. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Bring out the best of everything. That's what we're going to eat on that day. And he will swallow up on this mountain. He will completely destroy the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil spread over all nations. What's he talking about? He will swallow up death forever, even death the most final thing that any of us can experience in this life, even death, is not final to the Lord. And it will not be final to you and to me in Christ. Neither will our grief. Verse 8, And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Even those sadnesses you take with you to the grave, they will not be final. But he will wipe those tears right off of your cheek as a mother or a father does for their child. Even our shame will not last in the reproach of his people. You ever think that? Israel failing time and time again, that reproach will be no more. He will take away that reproach from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. The shame that you carry, that haunts you, that you ask for healing for, it'll be gone. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Peace comes as we take refuge in hope. Peace comes as we take refuge together in the church, which is called in the Bible and in the church fathers, the church is compared to the ark 
where we wait out the storm together, where we experience Christ's presence with us in the boat even now, even while it's raining. Peace comes through praise and through prayer in the midst of hardship and through hope. Resurrection is, I know I'm, I'm not alone in this, that whenever I prepare a sermon, especially a, a sermon like this, and, and, and this is certainly true for all the other pastors on our staff, that we prepare these sermons, and as we speak into anxiety and, and fear and all of the rest, your faces come to our minds and the particular burdens that, that you carry. And as a minister, I think all of us feel a great weakness because it can feel like we have nothing to offer. And there are certain sadnesses. We have nothing to offer except for this, the promise of the Lord's peace, the promise of peace that passes understanding, peace that you will experience perfectly on that day, but peace that you can experience even now, right where you are, in the midst of whatever you are going through. And so, resurrection, may you be a people of peace. May you be a people of praise and prayer and hope. May we together experience the peace that passes all understanding because this, this is the gift of God. Trust in God forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. On him we stand secure. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.